We can go get one there. Well, it's good to be with everyone this morning, and certainly again to you on live stream. Great to have you with us. A reminder to you on live stream, if you came on late, this is a communion Sunday, so you certainly can get the elements in your house and have communion with us when we move to communion after the uh, sermon this morning. Uh, but this is uh, our sixth week. If you're new with us today, visiting with us, this is our sixth week in our summer series out of 1 John. And what we've been doing, and what John has been doing, he's been pointing out authentic faith from counterfeit faith, and he's been doing it in a number of ways. And one of the things we're going to be looking at today is what is truth? When we begin to think about counterfeit faith versus real faith, uh, what is truth? And one of the things that John is always doing, he's always saying it's out of what we believe that we live our life. It's out of what we believe that our lifestyle comes from. And certainly, truth is a very important piece of that. I I was thinking about this, and I was thinking uh, about a story uh, in Jesus' life. It's when he's before Pontius Pilate, and this is out of John 18, verse 36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason, I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And here's Pilate's response. What is the truth? And just threw his hands at Jesus and went out to basically talk about whether or not he was going to bring, you know, uh, basically press charges against him. And here he was, the irony of it is, here he was, the living word, the one who came in spirit and truth, the one who was the way, the truth, and the life, right before Pilate, and he asked the question, what is the truth to the one who could give him the answer, and yet it was not something that was on his heart. I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about a movie, um, you know me with movies, uh, A Few Good Men. And if you want to put that picture up, that'd be great. Right. So in this movie, I think this is, this is sort of what Jesus could have said, right? The truth, the truth, you can't handle the truth, Pilate. And literally, it's an expression that basically tells about the mindset of our culture. You know, people have told us that, you can bring that down, yeah, have told us that we're in sort of a postmodern culture, this idea that truth is all relative in our culture. You know, postmodernism, um, you know, has, is characterized by skepticism, subjectivism, relativism, a general suspicion of reason, an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. And certainly we see that all over. We're living in an age of misinformation, of everybody's opinions, of political opinions out there. No matter what media you go on, uh, you will find somebody who believes what you believe. And it could be the craziest thing in the world, but you're still going to find it. 
Truth has become so relative that it's hard to know. You have to do fact checks just to make sure that what you're reading is the truth. And when I think about today and I think about truth, I think about the end of the book of Judges. And this is what it says. Everyone did was what was right in their own eyes. And I really believe that's the culture we're living in. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We see that now. For everyone has their own truth. Everyone has their own narrative. Everyone has their own story. And there's no such thing as a meta-narrative anymore. But that's what we're going to be looking at today. Because what John has been doing when he's looking at what's counterfeit and what's real is he's been pointing out here are some of the things are, are the tests for that. He started out with the whole moral test of righteousness and sin and bringing that out. And then he went to the social test was, are we people walking in love? Are we loving God and loving our neighbor? Are we falling into worldliness? And this week, he's going to be talking to us about truth, living out of the truth, sound doctrine. What does that look like? And that's where we're going this morning. But let me just pray for our time before we go into the word and ask the Holy Spirit to bless it. Father, we just want to come to you this morning, and we want to lay before you this word. We thank you for John. We thank you for the heart of this pastor and apostle. We thank you that the apostle of love comes with urgency to his people. And today we pray that through me, Lord, not me, but the Spirit speaking through me, you will speak to our hearts that you will bring encouragement, you will bring conviction, and you will bring transformation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to start today by reading from 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. And what we see right here is the apostle writing with deep concern for the believers in his church and congregations in that area, and truly for us here today. And um, he, he mentions the last hour, the last hour. And, you know, people can get this so confused. They can look at it in many different ways. How is this being expressed in John? There are some people who said, well, look, John said the last hour. Well, the last hour passed and went, so John was wrong. And certainly, if you look at it a particular way like that, you might, you might get a sense of that. But that's not what John was doing. And, and one of the ways I want to present that is, how many have ever heard of the doomsday clock? Anybody heard of the doomsday clock? Could, could you put that picture up? This is the doomsday clock. The, atomic, the Board of Atomic Scientists put this out every year, and it really is to talk about when and how close we are as a culture, as humanity itself, to actually destroy itself, right? Last year, despite laudable efforts by some leaders and the public, negative trends in nuclear and biological weapons, climate change, and a variety of disruptive technologies 
All is exacerbated by a corrupted information ecosphere that undermines rational decision-making, kept the world within a stone's throw of apocalypse. Global leaders and the public are not moving with anywhere near the speed or unity needed to prevent disaster. And if you can see this, it moves back and forth depending upon different types of events. And this is very similar to what John is saying when he talks about the last hour. He's not talking about a unit of chronological time. He's talking about decisive events that are part of what Jesus is talking about when he says the last times. Those times between his first and second coming. So in the same way, this is how John is talking in this context. There is a decisive event that has happened. So you can take that down, yes. So this has made it even more clear later in the passage that it is a period of time, because later in the passage that we're going to be looking at, he commands the people, and us here today, to abide in him. Why would, if there was only 24 hours left, or the last hour left, he then say, abide in him, which means having a long-term relationship, remaining steadfast. So we see that John is talking about events that lead up to that which would be called the end times, the last days, the last hour, that time between Jesus coming and his coming back again. That's sort of where we're at right now. And so what's precipitated this is something has happened to bring urgency and specifically the leaving of certain members from the congregation. A separation that shows that those who have left the fellowship have passed judgment on themselves. This is John 3, 17 through 21. Listen to these words. And, and this is what John is speaking about. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And this is what we're going to see is what's going on with the people who are leaving the congregation. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So there's this exodus, okay? And, and here's the thing. You know, we're living in a time where we're pretty used to people going in and out of churches, right? We have people leaving one church, going to another church, another church, um, and we can console it. You know, we are a consumer society, so a lot of times we go from one church to another. We're trying different things out. This is not what John is talking about, okay? This is not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something more, more sobering, but even more than that, more cataclysmic in the life of the people who are leaving. Because he's talking about people who are not just leaving one fellowship to go to another. He's talking about people who are leaving to not go anywhere else. And what is happening in this are the signs of the last days. 
that Jesus talked about in Mark 13 and Matthew 24, different passages like that. There's false teaching. There's divisions in the church and among friends and family. And these things characterize a situation that's made this letter necessary. This is where he's at. So Jesus refers to the people who left as antichrists. John is the only writer of the New Testament that uses this term. In John's vocabulary, the Antichrist opposes Christ, but not so much by open aggression or hostility, but with deceit and falsehood. The Antichrist is a counterfeit Christ, stands in the place of Christ. So the Antichrist, the first John, are those who deceive others through false teaching about the person of Jesus and the nature of the Christian life. See, that's where he's going here. So the people who are leaving, you know, it's not about a particular way that they want to worship. It's not about a political ideology. It's not about the way they think about racism. It's not about the way they think about masks. It's not about, we can go through the list of things, right? We've all experienced it over the last two years. Not about those things. It's about something that's much deeper. It's about a denying of who Christ really is, of what real truth is. And having pastored for almost 40 years, I have seen people coming in and out congregations who never went back to a congregation. They left. And they went into the world. And it was so sad to see because they were a part of us. And John Stott says this, and I think this quote is pretty telling. Perhaps most visible church members are also members of the invisible church. The mystical body of Christ. But some are not. They are with us, yet do not really belong to us. They share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. And that's very sad. It should break our hearts, and it's breaking John's hearts because he feels as though not only are people leaving, but this false teaching is impacting other people. So what's the protection? John, you're, you're laying this out before us, and it does concern us. What protects us from this deceit, from this hour of deception that we're in? What protects us from false teaching? Verses 20 and 21. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Christ himself is the original Holy One. So if you're doing your kid's sermon, that's an answer for you. Christ himself is the original Holy One. Luke 4.18, Jesus speaks about himself. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. He's anointed me. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. So you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know. This is one of the defining characteristics of every true believer is that Christ, God's anointed one, 
has touched us with his anointing. What is his anointing? His anointing is the giving of his spirit. And as the spirit comes into our hearts, it causes us to know the truth. The truth that that doesn't have any lies in it. You know that Jesus is the Christ, God's anointed one. Has that happened to you? I remember when it happened to me. I can still remember that moment in a bedroom by myself after hearing a resurrection sermon, coming to the Lord, and when the Holy Spirit descended upon my heart, I knew! I knew! And I had been a skeptic. And I had taken Jesus' name in the mud. But in that moment, I knew and still know through the Holy Spirit, the anointed one. And so he says this, the anointing, this anointing is your protection against the great lie. Verses 22 through verses 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You see, the truth that the community and the congregation confesses and that the liar, the Antichrist, denies is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised Messiah. To explain it more fully, we need to take into account a couple other statements from the book, right? Chapter 4-2 says that Jesus comes in the flesh. Chapter 5, verse 6, he comes by water and blood. So the liars would deny that Jesus was God living among us in the flesh. And they would deny his humanity died on the cross to atone for our sin. They would deny this. And in doing this, Jesus mediates salvation and eternal life and is therefore the way to the knowledge and fellowship with God. We saw that in the first part in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1. But Jesus in John says this through his own words in John 12, 44 to 45. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me, both God and man, both divine and man. And so what we have here that's going on is a little bit of what they call Gnosticism. It's in this Hellenistic culture, this Greek culture, where they divide the spirit and the flesh. And the flesh is evil all the time, and the spirit is good. And so coming out of that philosophical mindset, being brought into the company of believers and being talked about this, they couldn't accept that Jesus was actually God when he died on the cross, that he was both God and man when he died on the cross. That could not happen. Jesus was born at his baptism. The Spirit came in him, and before he went to the cross, the Spirit left him because God could not die. And you see, if you take away this, you take away the whole atoning work of Jesus. You basically have taken away the gospel. This is what they're talking about here. And John is coming very clearly against this. And here is the reminder to the church, both then and now, 
that the message that we dare not sacrifice is the stumbling block of the cross. Any version of the Christian message that abandons the twin truths of human sin and divine salvation through the cross would be, as John says, a clear-out lie. The real danger facing John's church and the church today is to water down and ignore the realities and depths of human sinfulness and God's demand for holiness. And this happens in many ways, right? When the gospel is turned into a panacea for the problems and hard circumstances we all face and becomes a promise of a better life defined by us, by our terms. When what is taught and preached is what God generously gives to us, but not so much as what he expects of us. So we have the prosperity gospel. We have this amazing thing of the life insurance policy that is Jesus' salvation, but we can go into the world and do anything we want. You know, we, we have different versions of this, and we can also ourselves live out of those different versions. We have to be very careful. We have to be very careful. We have to be grounded in the truth. Yes, God gives abundant life, but he also promises that we will have adversity in this world. He also talks about the suffering that we will face, and that will refine us and refine our faith as by fire. There's a purpose to these things, we, much to our chagrin in many times, but this is, this is the gospel. And there's an expectation out of us to live in a way that reflects the character of heaven on earth. And so we can water down the gospel and not be living out of it. We can be getting false teaching that sounds so good. But it's not Jesus as Jesus. It's Jesus as Santa Claus. And it's not the real Jesus. You guys go to college. You guys are out in the workforce. You guys are in high school. Beware of this. Beware of what people are going to bring to you. Think about some other ways, right? What we might consider acceptable. That's, that's against what the scripture is saying. Injustice, unkindness, immorality, hatred, greed, selfishness. Go through the list. We can begin to actually accept some of these as okay. It's just the way the world is. It's my personality. Anybody have that excuse? It's just who I am. I'm an angry person. I love to let everything out. That makes me healthy. It doesn't matter if I'm really beating people up with my words. We can go through the list of these things. We can look at injustice and say, well, well they deserve that, or oh, they have an ability to, to move out of that. Yep. We have all kinds of ways that we can basically take the Scripture and rationalize away the things that we don't like about the Scripture. And that is doing what? It's moving away from the truth. It's beginning to live out of a false gospel. And here's the other thing. And this is what we learned about last week, about worldliness. We need to remember that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, the world is anti-Christ. 
This world that we're living in is anti-Christ apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. And we have to be aware of that. We have to be looking at these things. Things that are presented to us as good, things that are presented to us as, as healthy, but where are they moving us? Are they moving us to man being the God of their own lives and being able to do these things? Or are they moving us to understanding that we are creatures created by God in his image in a dependent relationship with him? And what does that look like? So we have to be looking at these things. And we can be stepping into the false teaching and into these lies. We can be looking at this world around us and basically thinking, well, these things are all so good, but we don't take the time and allow for the Word of God to influence the way we look at things. And sometimes we basically don't want it. How many look at the money passages? When's the last time you looked at a money passage? I'm guilty, right? I'm not standing here. I'm guilty, right? How many times have I avoided passages, right? Because they're going to challenge me in the way I'm living my life. And I'm living out of a lie. And there's an urgency to that. And there's times, the scripture says, when we see more of this, and I believe we're in one of those times, we're seeing more of the signs of the last hour. And we should take this message with urgency. So what are the safeguards to protect us against deception? Well, that's where he goes now. Verses 24 through 27. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is great. I, I mean, I love the pastoral heart, how he comes back and he says, here's the ways. Look, John tells us there's three things to keep us from falling into deception. Three things if you're filling out the kid's sermon. Three things. The word of God is proclaimed in the scriptures, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and abiding in him. And it starts with the anointing of the Holy Spirit as it did with the apostles. Listen to Acts 1, verses 4 through 8. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. This is after his resurrection appearances. He's now getting ready to leave. He's talking to the apostles and disciples. And here's what he says. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. I think this sort of just answered the whole idea of the last hour and the end times and all that. Guess what? You're not going to know about it. So stop it. There's other things to do. Hmm, okay. 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what did they do? They went back and they prayed for 10 days. They prayed for 10 days. Does anybody know what happened after those 10 days? Anybody? Who said it? Pentecost. Yes, you want to put that picture up? Pentecost. They were all there. And all of a sudden, these tongues of fire came down upon them and a wind came sweeping in and the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, right? And the Spirit opened up their eyes and their hearts and they understood the truth. They understood the teaching and the words of Jesus and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, which pointed to Jesus as the Messiah who brought salvation and the good news of the gospel. Peter just gets up and he preaches. The disciples are speaking in different languages to other people as he's preaching. The Holy Spirit is set on the loose. And what happens? Well, we know what happens is that 3,000 people, it says, believed. And all who believed were anointed with the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit illumined the truth of the word and of who Jesus is. God in the flesh who lived among us full of spirit and truth. He was the exact representation of the Father, the radiance of God's glory, the one and only mediator and high priest in the order of Melchizedek, representing both God and man at the cross where justice and mercy kissed, where forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, and glory were purchased by the blood of the Lamb who was slain. Hallelujah! in whom there is resurrection from the dead and in the present and ongoing relationship with the Father and Son. And this relationship grows more intimate as we abide in Him. The Word, the Spirit, and abiding. John 15, 7 through 11. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The Word, the Spirit, and abiding are the safeguards against deception. They keep us grounded in the truth. Let's just put this up there for a second. This is sort of a a way of looking at it. So you have this all within the unconditional love of God, and then you have all by faith. There's that humbling of self, praying and searching yourself out, repenting of your sin, surrendering yourself to the Lord. These are the things that we do. We're then clean. We're then anointed in the Holy Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. As we're filled with the Spirit, the Spirit prompts us. God's Word is a major part of our lives. 
we begin to live out of the power and fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And as we do that, we move in this circle. And now we have decision points and how we're moving in our life. Are we going to obey and abide? Or are we going to disobey and grieve and quench the Spirit and the flesh? But in either case, the way to come back is to humble ourselves again. Amen? This is the abiding. This is the abiding. A perfect illustration of that is the Beatitudes. Just take the Beatitudes and pray through them. This is abiding. It's this ongoing relationship. And this is being grounded in the truth. As I do this, I live more and more out of the truth and less and less out of my own flesh, out of the world, out of the devil. And in this hour of deception, I can live in a way that brings the character of heaven to earth. This is what he's talking about. We'll be delivered from the things that would move us away. I love what Spurgeon says. Abiding in Jesus, living in Jesus, is not a passive thing. It is an active thing. We must give ourselves both mentally and spiritually to living in Jesus. We abide in him, not by a physical law, as a mass of iron abides on the earth, but by a mental and spiritual law by which the greatness of divine love and goodness holds us fast to the Lord Jesus. Who do you want to be the anchor of your soul? Who do you want to be the one who's informing your life? I want to be held fast to Jesus. The living word full of grace and truth. And as we do this, brothers and sisters, we are ready for glory. Amen? We're ready for glory. Listen to verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Hallelujah. Abide in him. Basically, this means to give up all confidence in ourselves and step out each moment in full dependence on him who lives within us for everything we do or say anywhere or anytime. That's so easy, isn't it? Yeah, right. Abide in him so that our actions are no longer a result of us mobilizing all our resources to do something for him, but it is him utilizing all his abundant resources to do everything through us. Have you seen that difference in your life? Have you seen that difference in your life? What's it like when you try to do these things on your own. There's struggle. There's the, just the, the heart that just doesn't want to give up the things that I think are important. But when I lay it out there and when I have that deep sense that I'm being led by the Spirit, that I'm His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what He's laid out in advance for me to do, and then we step into that, 
there is something about it where we step into the pleasure of God. We're living out his will, and it's the easiest thing in the world to do. I mean, and sometimes it's been crazy. Sometimes it's been like being in places where I was cleaning toilets, and it was the easiest thing in the world for me to do. Or stepping into places where, where, where people were so desperate and so hungry and there was so much disease and stepping in without a care in the world because knowing that God was with us in that. Stepping into a conflict. Nobody wants to step into conflict. Who wants to step into conflict? But because God is leading us, we step into conflict and we see the fruit of the Spirit leading us and we see the wisdom that God is giving us and the ability to love these people who sometimes have been very angry and harsh towards us. This is this abiding and living out of Jesus moving in and through us. And what he says is, as we do this, we practice righteousness. If we want to have an explanation for that, if you want to really know what it is, Jesus describes it in the Sermon on the Mount. Just go to the Sermon on the Mount and begin reading it. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, describes for us our relationship towards God, towards God and his word, that we are to be people in the word. We are to be people who live out of the word, people who love the word, people who see the word as sweet as honey and more precious than gold. Lord, help us. Lord, help me. Holy Spirit, help me. The Holy Spirit is in me. Help me to desire and hunger, to be loving this word which speaks to so many things in my life. And that will lead me to loving God and loving neighbor and walking in love in some very hard situations, knowing that we will even face adversity in doing this. And it also means that I, every day, will be face-to-face with God. My own heart coming face-to-face with God. And in that relationship, Him leading me to see, to repent, and becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Spirit does. And brothers and sisters, when we do this, we will be ready for Jesus coming back. We will be ready for his appearing. We will have confidence and we will not be ashamed when the king of glory appears because when he appears, we will be like him. This is so powerful, so powerful. Think about that. God of glory appearing. What would it be like if he just appeared here right now? It was the last days. Would I shrink back? Would I be ashamed? Or would I, because I have been abiding in him and growing in him, I would be someone who would be so confident. I would be like the bride being prepared for the groom. It would be the wedding day of the lamb. That's what it would be like. A bride prepares herself for that wedding day. 
because she wants to present herself in all her beauty to the groom. And it's the same with us. We are the bride of Christ. I'm going to read this scripture. It's going to lead us in the communion so the worship team can come up. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And brothers and sisters, as we come to communion today, we're getting a taste, a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb.